The Talking Cure, Conversations with Jet Wheeler, is presented by the Office of Arts and Cultural Programming and Peak Performances at Montclair State University. Welcome, this is Jed Wheeler, and it's the Talking Cure with the tip of the hat to Sigmund Freud. Today, I am with David Rousseff. David is my ideal. He's a shaman, I think, and artists all have a bit of the shaman in them. And David is not only a shaman, but a guru. David is a Guggenheim Fellow. He's won a Herb Alpert Award. He's a writer, he's a choreographer, he's a filmmaker, he's a dancer, he's a teacher. He's uh, been working for maybe uh, at least 15, 20 years at UCLA with the World Arts and Cultural Department at UCLA. David, I miss you, David. You know, the, the whole motor, you know, I realized, I was thinking, oh, I want to talk to David. And I thought, shame on me. Shame on me. I should be calling him up all the time because he knows so much. Oh, that, that, I really appreciate those kind words. It's uh, kind words go a long way in this day and age. So I thank you. And uh, completely mutual. If I'm a shaman, then you are a facilitator of shamanism <laughs> and peak performances as a hub. Uh, of shamanism. I, it's what I appreciate. The purpose is so strong. Well, where are you right now, David? I'm actually at my home in Los Angeles in West Hollywood. Um, and I'm one of those people who actually really believes in social distancing and masks. So I have not <laughs> seen a lot of friends. And uh, I've been uh, kind of walled in at home. Uh, for quite a while now, um, going out for groceries and lots of Zoom meetings. Well, that's very wise of you. I, I hope everybody takes note that, um, unfortunately, you know, social restrictions and masks are going to be with us for quite a while, and we should not exactly. be dismissing them at all, not taking them lightly. Um, exactly. So. So what does that mean? You're at home taking, having Zoom meetings and are, are you, what are you Zooming about? Yeah, I, oh boy, I'm finding Zoom really um, uh, 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 frustrating these days. It started off, I loved it, uh, but uh, classes, meeting with students at UCLA, um, I actually didn't teach I wasn't teaching officially this quarter at UCLA, um, uh, where, as you mentioned, I'm in the Department of World Arts and Culture slash Dance, um, a professor there. But all of our classes, of course, went remote. And I was doing a lot of independent studies, a lot of meetings with faculty, um, social meetings, happy hours, cocktails with friends. Um, and I stand by uh, Zoom as absolutely vital. Um, and necessary in terms of keeping in touch. Um, and I was really actually kind of elated at the kind of electronic uh, uh, electronic um, visitations and meetings. Um, but now it's actually getting a little bit frustrating um, uh, in the ways that you can and can't communicate on Zoom. Uh, meetings with other artists, 
Um, I wasn't teaching a technique class this quarter or a composition class. I am next fall, um, so it'll all still be remote for me then. Um, so you think this, so the department won't be going face to face in the fall? They won't, no, we won't. Um, and it's a combination of things. Um, I mean, I think uh, Zoom teaching uh, and creating, because I know a lot of my friends, uh, I have a really great, UCLA is a real hub for working choreographers and choreographer named Vicki Marks and Dan Fruit and Ann Carlson. We all have a weekly, there are about eight of us and we have a weekly Zoom. Oh my God, out. what a group. It's actually, it's amazing. Wow. It's my whole week. <laughs> and Anne is actually making a piece on a European company now. So she's kind of at the forefront of how does that work? <laughs> I, I know, you know, it's, but, but one of the, well, for me, one of the benefits with Zoom has been that I get to see so many people all at once. Yeah, exactly. That's I mean, actually very true. You know, and that, that's been very gratifying. You know, but you raise, you, you raise a very interesting question, which is one that I've been tossing around and which keeps coming up. And I know it's been very much involved with your own creative work over the years, and that's intimacy. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great point. Um, you know, before this call, I was thinking that we were at peak performances with um, Stardust, which is certainly one of the, if not for me personally, the most resonant uh, piece that I've made because it's this this um, young 13-year-old um, um, uh, uh, queer African-American boy who's communicating with people through technology uh, pretty much only. Um, he's sending out a, a series of tweets and text messages and trying to find an intimate connection through technology. Um, and what I didn't realize was that we'd actually all be doing that in well, that's. Right. I was thinking. I was thinking back on Stardust completely because. Yeah. I mean, we've now intimacy keeps changing. I mean, I don't mean that in a glib way. No, I think that's a great point. And you know, one of the one of the biggest conundrum for me, right? You know, in what I do is is that um, we have a theater, but how do we make it intimate? I mean, oh, how do we, because it, it actually has given me the opportunity to really look into the specific moment uh, that yeah. happens between a member of the audience and a performer, which is truly intimate. And there's just no way that that can be replicated. Yeah, that's, that's such a great point, um, Jed. I was having a conversation with um, a really good friend and amazing choreographer, Kyle Abraham. Um, and Kyle is also at UCLA, but we're off campus buddies, really good friends. Um, and he was saying exactly that, that because in fact, both of our bodies of work are concerned with intimacy as a theme, but also creating an intimate connection with the audience and communicating with the audience, but also having the audience um, communicate with each other, whether that's non-verbally or uh, feeling part of a larger community that's then sharing these ideas that are being tossed out from the stage, but also the intimacy from the audience is being received from the stage. And, you know, it's just even in California, and I assume everywhere when theaters do open, and I can imagine people may have to be spaced 
six seats apart or and Kyle was saying, I, and I hadn't thought of it until then, like, how will that work? Because distance is also with a group that's sharing a communal experience can be counter to a really intimate experience. Um, and it's hard because it's not only thematically, uh, using Kyle as an example, does his work often deal with uh, questions of intimacy, but also he hopes to, as I do, create an intimate conversation with the audience. Um, so that the theater becomes a big cauldron of uh, the type of intimacy that's maybe missing sometimes socially. And theater was always the place where we could find that. And Kyle and I were saying it's not only kind of the ethos of intimacy, and, but also artistically and in terms of nuts and bolts. Well, I've, I've never said this to, uh, I said it to a few people, but never publicly, but my own personal um, passion for the, the theater, not just theater as drama, but dance and music, is, is it is where I have the most intimate conversations with myself. Oh my gosh, that is so true. That's actually kind of the indulgent draw for me. Sometimes I feel indulgent because it's really about that. I'm finding, that's where I find through viewing work and then creating work and viewing that work, that's where I actually make my uh, own self-discoveries. I'm having a conversation with myself about what's at the center of my own being. Um, and that's the power of theater and dance. That's what I don't want to lose, no matter how good the work is on video. Well, well my fantasy, which is at, at this point, just about every day is a fantasy because I have no idea what tomorrow is actually going to be anymore. But but is that you know we're going to be so technologically adept that we're going to get we're going to say no i'm over that yeah <laughs> you know i i don't want to see a screen of 250 singers yeah i want to i want to i want to be literally lifted by the voice of 250 real people yeah exactly and there'll, there'll be this complete shift demand for yeah. live performance. It, and it uh, feels like that's a real possibility because that's what I meant about, um, and not to pick on Zoom, it's the whole notion of communicating. It's actually really great. I have learned a lot from these Zoom meetings, for example. We could never do this, what we're doing right now without Zoom. I mean, that's right. in a positive way. Oh, it's yeah. connecting people in ways that I hadn't imagined. But then it became the only source of communication. <laughs> right. and I, I went from, this is amazing in the beginning. Wow, it's almost like real life. To you start to slowly but surely realize what's lacking and what's missing. And even in communication, that um, body language and the comma in a sentence um, and the ability to jump in in those commas and um, all of that is lacking on uh, through, um, it's not Zoom, it's, it's um, uh, technological communication. And so that I went from, gosh, this is just as good at, as to, boy, is this stuff. <laughs> well, in the right well, circumstances, it, it's, it's amazing, but I, I'm hoping that people feel that with live theater as well. Well, as long as we're riffing on, on words, I mean, your company is called Reality. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who could have imagined this reality? <laughs> right, exactly. 
you know, yeah, it was... and you know, but have you thought about adding virtual reality to oh, yeah. David, David Rusev's <laughs> virtual reality? We may have to, because I think reality is definitely going to be redefined after this. Oh, it's well, the good news is that we've been working in what people laughingly call the imagination sector, right? Right. <laughs> you know, Right. Well, I mean, nobody in our sector could imagine the reality that we're in today. I don't right. care how many people are claiming they knew what was going to happen. Forget it. Yeah, and it, it's just great. It's like a trifecta of the first, what I would personally, not to speak for anyone else, but I would call the uh, onslaught attack against democracy from the White House, for me personally. That's number one. Right. COVID. Yeah. And then came this amazing social movement, but it's steeped in and based on and um, caused by these incredibly gruesome, tragic, racist events. So it's been this just overwhelming trifecta of cuckoo-ness. And um, it's hard to know even how to respond. They just kind of all lined up. Well, um, your work has always been grounded with grit and passion. Yeah. And socially charged. I mean, uh, um, uh, that's another reason I wanted to touch base with you, because um, your perspective, uh, I think, is vital. I mean, you've been at the, you've been, not that you're alone, I don't mean to put you in that context. Yeah, no, I appreciate it's been, that. It's been very much part of your being from the day I met you back when. You know, yeah, and you've never shed it. You don't hide it. You, you know what, who you are. You know, African American game. You know, fighter. Yeah, creative yeah. talent. You know, but it's always been that's you. That's and you put it on stage and you. Yeah, you thank you for communicate that. It. It's a good reminder because again. Um, in my lifetime, at least, it, we've, I've never seen a time like this. And it can be overwhelming and you think, well, what can I do? What can I possibly do? Um, and it's a reminder that we've all been warriors for hopefully the good stuff and changing the world in a positive way. And just putting yourself out there through the work, telling the stories of disenfranchised people, which I've tried to always do, uh, whether it's my grandmother or the young African-American gay man in Stardust or uh, Billy Strayhorn in my latest piece, it's telling those stories about disenfranchised people or people who have maybe never had the right to hope and now are demanding uh, hope. Uh, that has been empowering. And then the question comes up, um, you know, as we move forward, is that enough? Um, in this day and age, um, and uh, it's a it's a great question. I, it feels like um, I don't want to lose the um, the fact that this is a moment of um, self interrogation as well as social um, interrogation, and I've kind of been sitting in um, thought process, absorbing what's happening in the world, but also. Um, while being feeling a little inept and decisionless, realizing that we're all absorbing what this new reality means and how we can best address it. And that the work um, for me has always been, uh, and I appreciate that reminder because we all 
um, should be reminded of all the good work that we've been doing in the past that um, has led us to this precipice. Well, for me, uh, the one thing that, I mean, I, I, don't know, I, I don't put myself in a special category. I, I do, I remember graduating from uh, high school in 1968. Um, that's a while back, but. Well, and, 77 um, here. <laughs> you know, in 68, well, you know, we had Martin, I was very much yeah. the Martin Luther King assassination. I was a Bobby Kennedy fan. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in Los Angeles five days before I was given my high school degree. You know, wow. um, I, I was devastated by that. And, you know, and I, the, the element of all of this for me personally, okay, is I know what I've been, what I've done and I've tried to do and who have, and my, my own personal efforts for inclusion and social equity and so forth. But the element that I don't think that I've adequately addressed or doing is violence. Mm, yeah. And I think, you know, and for me, it's, you know, this is, I mean, everything, I mean, had we not embraced violence as a, as a, as a, as a society, as a, as a, as a tool, um, you know, maybe Mr. Floyd would be alive today. Yeah. You know, I mean, but, but, uh, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not, I have my own views about the military, the, which we call police, <laughs> you right. know, vice versa and all yeah. and, and where that is, you know, but, but culturally, you know, you know, and I was reading, I mean, if you, I don't, uh, this is, I'm actually just riffing at the moment, but if you look at a speech that Bobby Kennedy made, two days after, he made an extraordinary speech the night of the assassination of Martin mm -hmm. Luther King, mm -hmm. um, which he's quoting Aeschylus. But two days later, he made a speech at the Cleveland Institute and in which he addressed our national passion for violence. Mm -hmm. You know, and he, he called out the motion picture industry. You know, and I'm not, I don't think I would go that far, but I'm just saying. Yeah. That, it's you know that the uh, you know we allow violence uh, to be a common ground on which we which we live with. Yeah, that's a really great point, uh, and how much it is seeped into the very fabric of our culture, and how we respond uh, personally, domestically, and then socially uh, uh, through violence. Um, and it's tragic, and you don't have to go much further than um, I am one who believes that, even though I'm actually from the South and from family of hunters, um, we would shoot meat, deer, rabbits, and then eat it. So I um, I grew up with a gun rack in the middle of my den, but it was used for hunting and for food. My The arsenos, my mother's family, was very, very poor. And if you didn't shoot the meat, you didn't eat meat. Um, so I totally support um, hunting, um, but the fact that we keep having these schools, I mean, the epitome of it all, the apex of it all, is that we can't get even the most rudimentary of gun control, anti-violence, because that's the, uh, that would be the main form of anti-violence legislation that we could possibly deal with. We just can't even get the most rudimentary thing through, even though these kids continue to be slaughtered. Um, so it's, and then we start to see, um, 
how that manifests through all aspects of culture and it starts to drip down right into of course the police and the policing system and um, i will say that in los angeles obviously there were some looters who um, were not a part of the main protest who uh, seeped in but it, this was a remarkably nonviolent from the protesters in <laughs> Um, it was actually remarkably nonviolent. I, I can't say that the response was as remarkably nonviolent. And that's where you start to see the effect of this kind of systemic uh, right. um, um, proneness to violence. It starts to whittle down to every aspect, including police force. Well, is, I mean, you, your last piece was about Billy Strayhorn. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, where where are you and that piece emotionally now? Yeah, well, the huge disappointment was, uh, and and again, not to cry uh, myself because there are so many artists who have suffered. Um, the whole um, ecosystem of live performance um, has been so shattered by uh, uh, COVID, uh, but uh, it was really kind of tragic because we were. Um, in May, we were off to Cuba to perform the very last of the Strayhorn works and to um, give the piece a good send-off. Uh, there was a festival of theater in Cuba, and it would be my first time in Cuba. Um, everyone was so excited. Um, but of course, that was canceled um, due to uh, COVID. Um, and uh, in the fall, I had another. We were at the Cranach Center. My company was there. In, uh, September, and literally the week of the show, my mother passed away oh, uh, in Houston. Yeah, so that was going to be the big um, kind of uh, closure moment for the work. Um, and I w for the first time in my 30-year career, I wasn't there for a performance. Uh, my mother actually had really advanced dementia in its own way. Uh, not that death is ever a true blessing, but um, she doesn't. She's not suffering. Uh, and it had been many years of very advanced dementia, and it was somewhat expected. But all that to say, um, I missed um, the last performance in the States, and then Cuba happened out of nowhere, and everyone was so excited, and then uh, that was canceled as well. Uh, the festival will happen in a year, but I don't think that, uh, uh, because my company is blessedly, and it really works for me project to project, meaning you work four or five years on developing a project, you tour it for a couple of years, and then it's time to move on. It feels like it's time to move on um, from the Strayhorn piece as well, and move into the next um, pocket of uh, creativity. Do you, want to, do you want to give me a hint? Of what, yeah, that's what's in your, po in <laughs> your pocket? <laughs> there are actually a couple of pieces, but um, I have, Cuba was going to be kind of the big finished to the Strayhorn piece. And then uh, I was planning to take a few months off from creativity. What happens is after I do a major work, um, um, it takes a lot of trust because I never actually trusted, but thinking, you know, I'm gonna take six months off. I'm not gonna go in the studio. I'm just gonna trust that there are ideas percolating. Um, and uh, so that's kind of what I'm doing, however, there are what's rising to the surface, and funny, we should talk about Stardust. Um, um, Carrie Ann Shimsham, who was the woman who did all the video work in. Oh, yes, uh, she's, uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, she's really remarkable. 
Um, she and I, I think the next piece is going to be that she and I are going to work on a, a, a film version of Stardust called Twit, um, a abbreviation for Twitter and also a song <laughs> for <laughs> Twit idiot. Um, uh, towards the, the 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 main character, the protagonist, but I think it's going to be um, um, uh, feature length, but um, you know, a non-commercial dance film, and it's interesting to try to uh, take that thematic material. And of course, the challenge with film for me is exactly what we're all encountering with Zoom, which is how do you create that sense of intimacy in a filmic world? Uh, but I think we may actually we're very close to saying let's let's do that over the next couple of years um so stardust may be coming back well let me know it was a brilliant yeah, piece sure. it was a brilliant it was in many ways i mean it was a it was ahead of itself really mm. i mean mm. I, I don't i mean for all the wrong reasons the world is very involved yeah. in tweets today yeah, exactly and i think tweeting is and all of it has taken on a completely different exactly well um, that's so interesting that you say that because i remember starting um stardust and thinking what if this character all he knows is tweets and text messages it's the way to to communicate and of course really communicating true ideas and true intimacy is misplaced through you can tweets and text messages maybe can augment that but it's um you know, not the greatest vehicle for really trying to communicate your deepest personal ideas. So the whole idea of the piece was, uh, you know, you you have, I was hoping to evoke an empathetic reaction towards this character, but that tweeting is not exactly the right platform for the things <laughs> right, that you're trying exactly, to communicate. Yeah. And of course we have a president who's trying to communicate. Well, I mean, but you create this, you, this dissonance, this cognitive dissonance. Um, yeah, with, exactly. I mean, the struggle of the young man, the trying very much to find the intimacy with himself and externally using a device that actually is a masquerade for intimacy. Exactly. Oh my gosh, that's a great way to put it. That's really a great way to put it. And uh, actually masquerade, that's a really great word because it feels like um, the masquerade hasn't been acknowledged since my day age. Exactly. You know, guys, it's a masquerade. It's 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 not real intimacy. It's not real. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I I still go. I mean, I my family comes out of Louisiana. I won't go into my family history, believe oh. me. But we come out of New Orleans and Mardi Gras and masks and you know and oh. that on uh, rhythms and all of that is very much part of my life yeah for you know, sure so the word masquerade comes very naturally to me yeah <laughs> as a term i'm gonna have to give that some thought because i was in new orleans for the week before mardi gras and of course mardi gras goes on forever in new orleans right. well, so. the, mardi gras is is the 12 months of the year right. exactly in new exactly. orleans for sure exactly but in that case, it actually felt like an assertion of this amazing cultural identity of the city. It actually felt like it was creating um, intimacy and conversation, whereas um, the whole notion of pretending to be someone else, because everyone was doing it, and it's so yeah. um, inherently valuable to the city, and New Orleans is such a welcoming place, that it actually felt really great. Uh, but the notion of putting on masks in general is distancing but it didn't quite feel that way in new orleans interestingly well i mean this i mean there's so many 
cliches and characters that come out of Louisiana, but you know, yeah. Tennessee Williams, I mean, his, the layering of the masks, you know, yeah. all, all of his characters, that's what gives that literature such weight. Exactly. You know, exactly. and I think that's right out of the quarter, you know. For sure. Were you born and raised in New Orleans? No, my mother was. My grandmother lived there. Oh, um, I, I, I grew up in I grew up in another segregated town called Washington D.C. Oh yes, <laughs> I've heard of that town. <laughs> so talk about masks and what's real and who's putting on whom. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, it was a it was a natural movement from New Orleans to Washington. Yeah. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. Well, D David, this has been delightful, you know. Yeah, thank you. With you. Same but here. I really I, but I want to make sure that you know that um, I want to keep in contact. I would love that. And same here. You know, I would I mean, love that. Um, I think that, you know, what I'm what we're working on, I, we're in a very precarious place at the moment because we're an academic institution. It's a public institution. Oh, I hear um, you. Uh, there, you know, and I, I'm not totally sure exactly how each day is going to play out. I hear you completely. But you know, I I think that what we're working on, which is a variation of um, um, of how to uh, create work for broadcast, um, is what we're doing. Great. Wow, um, lovely. And. Uh, we got very lucky. Uh, well, I wouldn't say lucky is not the right word, but we were well on our way to developing a, uh, a, a broadcast mission for peak performances last season. Wow. Um, and we're about to launch um, a, uh, a program with uh, a, a channel called All Arts, wow. which is WNETLIW's um, cable and streaming service. And we captured um, some amazing pieces last year, um, not the least of which was a collaboration with Elizabeth Streb and Anne Bogart and Chuck Mee. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and then in terms of African-American identity, we, uh, I, I presented a, um, it shouldn't be about me, but I'm gonna tell you anyway, um, uh, a, a performance by a group called Grand Band. And Grand Band is six, Steinway Grand Pianos. Oh wow! Oh my god! And they, per and oh, they performed god. the work "Gay Gorilla." Oh my god! By Julius Eastman. Oh my gosh! Whose work I was just introduced to last summer. That's amazing. I mean, I knew Julius back in the day because Melissa Finley, genius that she is, um, you know, um, collaborated with him. Shortly before, I mean, he, wow. as you know, he had a, his history is he was a man who, of enormous talent, who basically died um, unknown, generally yes. speaking, and impoverished um, at a very young age. But anyway, uh, we, we, we've now have a multi-camera recording of that performance. And it's wow. so, so exciting. That's fantastic. I, I can't wait. As soon as we're done, I'm going to be on email telling. I have this great friend who's in Berlin, was in Berlin, uh, Susan Foster, who's a dance scholar. And she said, You have to come to this exhibit with me. You have to. And it was a retrospective on um, Julius Eastman's. Really? Oh, my God. Yeah. 
Yeah, and she said, "You have to, you have to." Well, see she's right. I mean, life. she's right. I yeah, mean, the, the really good, absolutely marvelous idea. Yeah. So anyway, I, I I want our paths to cross again. I would love that. You're on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. Oh God. Well, <laughs> when will we be flying again? <laughs> anyway, so um, I send you. Um, a real hug as best I can. Same here. And Hugs to you and to everyone at Peak Performances, and thank you for all the great work that you're doing. And well, it's really exciting you. to hear about these future plans. And we'll 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 keep going. We're moving forward. Great. Be well, take care. Thank you, David. Yeah. Bye bye. Thank you. bye, -bye.